You're listening to Milwaukee Mafia, your weekly podcast dose of Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Mafia. I'm Eric Waltergens. I'm Gavin Schmidt. And we're kicking off the next episode. Gavin, what do you got for a topic for us today? Well, apparently we're going to continue on with prostitution. Prostitution. Yep. Good. And this prostitution is going to have the mafia in it, correct? Yes. Sweet. All right. Well, take her away. Sure. Well, I want to do uh, two things before I I get going, if that's cool with you. That's totally cool with you. Okay. First of all, I want to give a shout out to people in Finland. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> uh, we do keep track of uh, statistics of who's listening. And as of this recording, we have eight people in Finland who are subscribers. I have no idea who you are, but thank you. And you're awesome for it. Yep. Now, just out of curiosity, I would assume, is Finland our number two country for listening? Well, there are, there are number three. Canada's number two. No, oh, Canada's number Can't two. Can't forget about Canada. Okay. So sorry, sorry, Canada. No shout out to Canada. <laughs> I appreciate the Canadians that are listening to our show. I appreciate everybody. I'm just amused that Finland is tuning in. And uh, the other thing is I just wanted to make a clarification. Um, I'm going to use the word prostitution and prostitutes and things like that. And I know that it's not technically cool anymore. Um, Now you're supposed to say like sex worker. That's like the proper thing you're supposed to say. Um, And I'm not going to do that. So if anybody is offended, I apologize. (laughs) But um, because I'm I'm doing this historically, I'm kind of sticking with the language they were using at the time. And I think that's fair. And I hope everybody out there understands. Yeah. So I don't mean it like when I say prostitute, it's not like I'm saying anything bad about these people. I mean, if that's their choice, that's their choice. It's just that's the language of the time. So. Gotcha. All right. So now are you ready? I am ready for prostitution. Okay. (laughs) Uh, We're going to talk about a man named Vincent Krupe. Uh, Vincent Krupe was the mob's man in charge of vice, and vice in this case being prostitution. Uh, He controlled the brothels on Water Street in Milwaukee. Most people should be familiar with Water Street. Uh, It's not far from uh, where Kitty Williams had hers. And uh, you probably don't remember, Eric, but other people will remember because last week's episode, we talked about Kitty Williams. Yes, I remember actually Kitty Williams. Okay. So. Okay, for those listening, we actually recorded the previous episode quite a while back. So for <laughs> you, it's one week. For us, it's a while. Um, Vincent uh, Krupe was related to the Guadalabenes, the Aliotos, the Tarantinos, the Balsturis, all the names that are going to come up in future stories. So he's right on in there as a member of the family. I came to America in 1907. He first went to live in St. Louis. I don't know why. Why St. Louis? But he lived there very briefly, worked in a shoe factory before heading on over to Milwaukee. He sent for his mother and his siblings, so the whole extended family was settled in Milwaukee, which makes sense because, again, that's where all the cousins are. He married a local girl. Uh, This is actually very unusual. Usually um, the Sicilians would marry other Sicilians, especially this early on in time. And this is 1914. This is very unusual that he's marrying a native uh, to Milwaukee. Even stranger, um, one of his witnesses is an attorney. I don't know exactly what he was an attorney of, but you know he was a notable member of the community. And his other witness was a deputy sheriff. So <laughs> um, knowing what this guy is going to get involved with, it's very interesting that apparently he was good friends with one of the deputy sheriffs. Uh, the couple had one daughter. Now, officially... 
if you looked him up in the city directories or, you know, you checked his uh, employment record, he was a trucker. Uh, he would support his wife and his mother. They lived on Van Buren, which is just a little bit north of the third. It's still kind of third ward. It's like on the board. It's a little bit north of there. Um, so that's what he said he did. But his nightlife was a little bit different. He entered what was uh, called the soda parlor business. And that's soda parlor business is usually kind of a, a code word because this is during the time when you couldn't have uh, a bar. Like this drinking is not allowed. Right. So you you ran a soda parlor business, and everybody kind of knew what that meant. Uh, sometimes you did really run a soda parlor, but a lot of times you didn't. <laughs> um, he went up the ranks uh, in this questionable world very quickly, where within the first couple of years, the newspapers were referring to him as a vice lord, which is a nice title. Yes, very nice. Yes, he is the lord of the vice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he ended up getting divorced. Uh, while his wife was in the sanitarium, so that was really nice of him. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> just left her there. Do we know why his wife was in the sanitarium? Yes, and I'm glad you asked, because when I say a sanitarium, you probably think an asylum. Yes. And that's, that's not what a sanitarium is. A sanitarium okay. is where you would go to get treated for tuberculosis. Oh, okay. So th- a- th- thank you for mentioning it, because, yeah, it's, I know the word sounds like but it's not what it. It's not what it is. He ends up getting remarried to another local girl. Uh, on the marriage license, he writes that he is unemployed. Not true, but that's what he claims. Mm-hmm. Uh, he doesn't have a lot of public documentation of what he's doing uh, for obvious reasons, but things get really, really out of hand by 1930. Uh, there's reports in the paper that he's responsible for starting fires in the area of Water Street, trying to burn out. Uh, com- competition. Really? Other other places that he does not own are getting uh, burned in the middle of the night. Uh, detectives are raiding one of his uh, taverns, his soda parlors, which is called the Green Light. Uh, they come in. He's arrested for running the brothel. Uh, he's released on bond, um, charged with being inmates or a variety of women. Um, inmates, again, being prostitutes. Inmates is the technical term here. Uh, he also ran a nearby place called the White Rock Cafe. So that was getting raided. The Vice Squad raids five establishments uh, very, very soon after, within like 24 hours. Uh, they arrested 13 people. A croupie is again arrested, this time again for running a brothel. He comes up with this very interesting defense, which at the time I think was novel, but today makes a lot of sense. And he said that he couldn't be responsible because all the women were independent contractors. (laughs) He's like, yeah, I mean, I, I, I run the place, but you know, they run their own little business here. They just use the space. They do whatever. So, you know, he's like, I'm clearly not responsible for what they do, which, uh, at the time, this again, being 1930, that's probably unusual, but now, I mean, yeah, I mean everybody's an independent contractor now. So, <laughs> so, so we've been we've been using this excuse. I can't be held responsible because I'm an independent. They're independent contractors. Yeah. Oh, he's not 1930. My, <laughs> he's not my employee. That's an independent contractor. <laughs> yeah. So it was clever. I mean, it did not work, but it was a clever idea. He's called to go to court. Nobody shows up to testify against him. <laughs> like. So- 
So does this just lead it to getting thrown out? Yep, it just gets thrown back out. Uh, he takes his nephew into the business, so his nephew's helping him run things. It's a man named Frank Lacalbo, and and Frank will come up in future episodes. He ends up becoming kind of a notable guy, um, and he is later the godfather to one of mob boss Frank Bellastri's children. So um, definitely, he he gets to be big later. This at this point, he's you know maybe in his twenties or something. He's a young guy, but. He'll get bigger later on. Thing, raids are going again and again and again. A uh, place called the Market Street Inn gets raided and various other houses in the area get raided, you know, because they have to kind of move around a little bit, kind of keep the police guessing. After this series of raids, a shakeup goes down at the police department. Uh, the police chief calls in Detective Bert Stout, and Bert Stout was the head of the vice squad at the time. And he goes, uh, you know, Bert, there's something very suspicious going on. Uh, it seems that you've been raiding these places, but you've been raiding all these other places more than you've been raiding Krupy's place, even though everybody knows about it. Like, he's in the paper all the time. <laughs> it's not a secret. He gets taken off of the vice squad and just put on regular patrol. And in fact, uh, Stout had gone to the district attorney and said, lay off Krupy. He's a good fellow. So wow! <laughs> so he was actually trying to get prosecution dropped against the guy, not the guy you want in charge of the vice squad. Not at all. So the chief speaks to the press about this. You know, it's kind of a big deal that the vice squad guy is getting removed. He goes to the press. He goes, in the 20 years that Detective Stout has been connected with the vice details, he made the acquaintance of many underworld uh, characters, obtaining information from them, which greatly aided the department in arresting other criminals. However... In reciprocating, he failed to use good judgment, extending many unnecessary favors. To permit a house of ill fame to operate merely because a lead might be obtained that would enable the police to arrest other criminals is not, in my judgment, good police work. These vice spots will be stamped out. To to explain that, if that's not uh, obvious, um, he's saying that when you work on the vice squad, you're going to be talking to and hanging out with questionable people. It's part of the job. Right. But... You can't just keep letting the same guy go because he's telling you where to find other places. Like, that's not cool. I'm curious because, I like, you always hear about people talking about, um, what do they call them, the contacts or whatever that you have on the outside when you're, like, on Vice. What, You'll have the a, informants? Yeah, informants. Okay. I mean, couldn't this guy have played off that this guy was just kind of an informant? Because I'm sure back then, like now they have technical, I think they have, where they have to classify them in, as an informant. And mm-hmm. the police, all police officers or whatever are, I mean, anybody that needs to know is where they're an informant. Yeah. But I'm sure that didn't exist back then. Do you know how that worked at all? Like, could he, could he have just, couldn't he have just simply said, well, he's one of my informants? Uh, it, you know, it's hard to say. They definitely had informants. I mean, that's a thing that's been around for a long time but i think this might be a a situation where that'd be hard to do because this guy is so high profile so you know yeah i could see how could he really be an informant i mean if if one of the girls is his informant and she's actually getting entire houses brought down um which wouldn't be very smart for business but you know if she did that that might make sense but when this guy's got like a whole string of places and he's like pointing out smaller places mm-hmm. um, and he's getting the press in the paper, like some, the, it's going to look fishy. You're, you're, you're going after the wrong people, right? <laughs> you're taking right. the small fish out and leaving the big Ex- one out. Exactly. I mean, in theory, the idea of an informant is you 
let the little guy, guy go to get a bigger guy. Yeah. And this is supposed to be the biggest guy, so he's not an ideal informant. Yeah. Fair enough. At least in the eyes of the, I mean, maybe he was very good at pointing out other places, but you don't want that kind of press. Right. Uh, they ended up having a hearing about uh, the Vice Squad, and they called in people who basically said what we were just talking about. Um, another brothel owner, a woman named Anna Joyner, she came in and she said that she felt personally uh, picked out while Kruppi was not getting rated as much as she was, even though everybody knew that he owned multiple mm. places and she just had one place. She's like, why is my place getting busted night after night? Didn't end up going well for him. Uh, Stout was uh, ultimately found guilty of incompetence and neglect. Uh, he didn't get fired, but he did get knocked down in rank. Uh, just as a side note... Uh, Joiner, this uh, she does end up leaving Milwaukee because I mean everybody now knows who she is. She's going to keep getting arrested. Not great, but she actually doesn't stop doing what she's doing. Ooh, of she course just, not. She's- she just takes up some of some of her girls with her, and they move up to Sheboygan, uh, and they end up opening what they call quote unquote a nightclub uh, called the Club Royal, and they end up operating that all the way up until 1952. Wow! So they they make a good 20 years out of that. Huh. <laughs> Uh, which is not the only place uh, outside of Sheboygan, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> uh, so Krupe, you know, eventually he's – he can only get arrested so many times before he's going to get in some serious trouble. He's, you can't just keep giving him fines. They finally bring him into a real trial where he's going to actually go to jail. Uh, he uses the claim now that he had been framed. He says that he had no control over what the women did in his saloon, again, using this kind of independent contractor idea. But he also now says that the room that they were doing it in wasn't even his room. Now he's saying that this was rented out by another man, and he didn't know where this man lived. He couldn't couldn't find this guy. So he's like, all I know is he pays his rent. I don't know where he is. So so this apparently made-up guy is now the one running things. This didn't work. It did, did not okay, work. Okay, I was going to say, because that's not believable at all. It did not work. And prosecution wasn't wasn't going to let this slide. And also, they pointed out the kind of leniency he had been, been getting. Now, we did mention this a little bit with the last episode, this tactic they would use where they would rotate um, when places got raided. And Krupe was really, really good at this. Um, his places got raided 15 times. Um, where he was charged as an inmate for being present, uh, even though everybody knew that he owned the place. He was charged 15 times as an inmate before he was finally charged as the owner. <laughs> so for those 15 times, he got a different person on site to be like, oh, yeah, I'm the one in charge today. So, so he was doing the same thing that I think it was Kitty that yeah. was doing in the previous episode where, well, let's just switch the blame over to everybody else so that Everybody just gets a small fine, and we can keep operating. Basically, yep. They had a they had a switch underneath the bar. They could switch the switch, and lights would go on in the back room to let them know the police were there. They tried to clean up things as quick as they could, but if they ended up did the raid did go through, that somebody would step forward and take the rap. But eventually, uh, he had to start claiming it, and yeah, that's that's when you get in trouble. You get just being in a place, they'll give you a fine because they're like, eh, whatever, no big deal. But you can't be the one running things. Mm-hmm. That's really frowned upon. Uh, so he does go to trial for that. Uh, it's not convincing. His arguments are not convincing. Uh, the jury finds him guilty of operating what they called a disorderly house. 
Again, another name for a brothel. He had been free for a while out on bail, but now he was carried off by the sheriff. The chief was very pleased with this, and the chief said, I hope it will act as a warning to all the other vice mongers in the city. It will be the policy of this department to obtain warrants under the House of Ill-Fame statutes for every keeper of a disorderly house arrested a second time. So again, the first time you'll get a fine, but second time you're in trouble. Now, you might think this is going to be the end. He's off. He's, he's arrested. He's off in jail. This is not the end. This is not the end. This is not the end. So he begins operating these things from within prison? Not exactly. Okay. (laughs) Please don't tell me he doesn't operate them in prison. (laughs) That would be pretty great. No. (laughs) So he's he's behind bars now, and he's thinking, oh, this is going to be bad. You know, I'm locked up for potentially up to three years, which, you know, it's not that long, but it's long enough. But apparently things were pretty loose in there. While he was in there, he was allowed frequent trips out to visit his wife at home. <laughs> really? Sometimes she would visit him there. She would bring him in whiskey. Uh, again, this is during Prohibition. She'd bring him in whiskey. She'd bring him in sandwiches. And everybody knew that he liked his sandwiches with extra ketchup on them. He liked a really juicy sandwich. So she'd put <laughs> extra ketchup on his sandwiches for him. Later on, another inmate. I got to I gotta oh, ask sure. right now. The ketchup thing, yeah. Where did that come from? Like, is that what did is that in the a newspaper or something? Yeah. That geez. yeah, yeah. I'm none of the, I'm making none of this up. This is all this is all from. The I know. Record. I just was wondering, like, what source would that have possibly come from? Yeah. Well, I mean, we'll we'll get to that, but yeah, it uh, it was it was printed in the paper. Yeah, later on, a, a former inmate also said that he knew that on occasion there would be drinking parties um, inside, um, and he knew that that Krupy was kind of running some of the drinking parties. So, yeah, it doesn't really, didn't really. I mean, he's not out there running things, but he's not really serving hard time. He make it this way, or was this just the way prison was, where it was just totally out of control? You know, hey, if you need to go home see your wife, go ahead. Type. It was it was kind of out of control. It was this just, was before he got there. Like he didn't change this. Okay. Like this yeah. wasn't because of special treatment to him or anything like that that it was able to happen. No. It, this is just the way prison was back then. It it had gotten really loose. I, my understanding is it got really loose during prohibition because a lot of the people were locked in there for alcohol offenses and the police and the guards didn't care Careful. about that. So a lot of them they were like, you know, they're not like it's full of murderers and rapists i mean they're all shipped off to wapan this is just the county jail so like they don't care gotcha you know even though he's now in uh in jail some of the people including the federated church women uh they were not happy said this is not enough the federated church women were were a powerful group in that day these were some of the people that had also pushed for prohibition and they really wanted to clean up what they thought was a bad a bad scene uh, they sent a, a scathing letter to the district attorney. They they said, you have had a failure to use the Lindley Law for padlocking disorderly houses. Now, the Lindley Law was this law that for places like this, the government could step in, put a padlock on a place, condemn it, and then claim the property. And they said, why are you not using – this is a tool that you know we have given you. Why are you not using it? And the DA replied to them. And he's was very sarcastic in his reply, and he goes, "Permit me to thank you for your little letter of trust and encouragement." <laughs> he then, instead of saying that they were right, called them out, and he said, "I was the one who arrested and convicted Krupy, so thank you. You know, you could thank me for that." He then further pointed out 
the Wickersham Report. And the Wickersham Report was a federal report in 1931 that actually went around the country and did investigations about vice. Apparently, vice was a big thing at this time all around the country. And they went around to the major cities. And when the report came out, Milwaukee was actually declared the cleanest of all the major cities. Oh, wow. So even though there's this area of town that everybody knows is the dirty part of town, apparently that's still better than anywhere else. Because everybody else probably had a much larger bad part of town. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or I mean, something. Yeah, you know. could be. Could be. But yeah, just for those who for those who want to know, if you were around in the 20s or 30s and you wanted to go to this kind of place, it wasn't hard to find. <laughs> uh, Krupe applied for a pardon from the governor. This was Governor Phil LaFollette at the time. And he stressed that his wife and his children were both citizens. They were they were Americans. And it would be a burden for them because if he, got, uh, if he didn't get pardoned, he was going to end up getting deported. He was born in Sicily. And if he was deported, well, he's going to bring his wife and kid with them. And he's like, this doesn't make any sense. He goes, they don't know Sicily. They don't even speak Italian. He goes, I came as a child. I barely speak Italian very well. I don't know anybody back in Sicily. He's like, this would be unfair. And he, again, in his letter to the governor, he comes up with this excuse that some other guy is renting out the space. He's holding to this. He's very, he's very firm about this. And I will say that this is probably, like, if there's one thing that I could have done to make this chapter in the book, all this is in the Milwaukee Mafia book. One thing I could have done to make this better was I could have got the um, the pardon reports. Those are available, and I have got them on other people, but I didn't get them in this case, and that was an oversight on my part. So um, I've not actually seen the letter and the governor's response in any investigation that was done. Sometimes there's some really good stuff in there. Um, so uh, if anybody wants to look into that, um, go for it. <laughs> Otherwise, I will later at some time. <laughs> Because it's another piece of the story that I missed. We'll update you when he has a chance to do it. Yeah. Whenever I'm allowed to go back to the Madison uh, State Historical Society again. I don't even know if they're open to the public yet. but I would imagine not at this point. Yeah. So he's he's let out of jail. He's not pardoned. Okay, he's not pardoned. He's not pardoned. He ends up, he does have to face deportation. Uh, at first, he has an attorney say, you know, you should probably try to stall this with legal maneuvers and then the attorney starts looking over the paperwork and is like never mind there's nothing there <laughs> yeah he's like he's like no this kind of a record is you can't win like you could pay me to try but you're just throwing your money away it's not going to work so even his own lawyer abandons him he ends up calling a press conference before he gets deported he tells the press he goes i will be lost i'm 39 and I left Italy when I was only a kid. I can talk Italian moderately well, but as for reading and writing it, that's next to impossible. I have done wrong. So apparently, you know, he admits he did something. I have done wrong, but I have served my time as other wrongdoers do. So I can't see why this extra punishment, being banished from what is my homeland, must be given me. It's just like fixing up a dose of poison for a man and then pouring in another bottle of poison on top of it. <laughs> We're all human beings, after all. And we will be lost over there, you know, which is a fair point, honestly. Yeah. Considering the fact he'd never really been there, it'd be one thing if he had grown up there or something like that. But yeah, totally. And then his family has no connections to back there. Yeah. So. But yeah, he does get deported and his family does join him. So they leave off for Italy. Now, are you thinking we're at the end of the story yet? Well, I've got to imagine. So you've gone through one person and I can't imagine that like the 
prostitution mafia just dies with this one guy. So there's got to be more to this than just this one guy, right? Well, the, the the mafia connection doesn't come back for a while. There'll be future stories. There'll be part three and four and five. five. There's oh, okay. a, this this will keep coming back again and again. Um, but this is probably the end of this part of the mafia bit. But but I have a little bit of follow up if we want to keep going. I actually got a so, lot of paper here, but I can try to make it quick. So if he gets deported, yep. Then I'm imagining somehow he tries to get back. He does. He does get back. He doesn't get back, but he, he tries does. to get back. Okay, so let's let's go. You're better at telling the story than me, so go for it. Let's hear it. Okay, so he's gone. Uh, the newspaper starts running uh, investigations to see if situations have improved. Like, okay, this guy who we said was the worst guy, he's gone. How is it? Uh, they go around and they find, no, uh, there's still some problems. There's lots of places that are skirting curfew. There's waitresses that are getting too friendly with the patrons, putting it politely. Places that um, tried to get around certain laws by becoming private clubs and to become a member, all you had to do was sign a thing to join and then you were a member of the, the club. club so, um, you know, and we've seen things like that in these days too where the people have like cigar clubs, stuff like that. Yeah. So they get around some laws. Um, these are different laws. These are laws that you're not really supposed to be able to get around. <laughs> uh, yeah, they said, you know, there was still a place that was running that was the worst dive in all of Milwaukee. There was a pot-bellied stove there that throws off an unbearable heat that intensifies the stench. A, wait- a waitress there was described as corpulent. The kitchen was untidy. And if you wanted a young woman to join you in a booth while you drank, it cost an extra dime before you even did anything else. This place was called the Roseland. And it was contrasted with another place in town called the La Tosca Cafe, which was run by Carlo DiMaggio. And you and I have talked about DiMaggio, but the listeners haven't heard this yet. This will come up in future weeks. But DiMaggio is later going to be accused of uh, stabbing a guy. And uh, he'll come up again in a, in a future murder in the 1950s. But anyway, they compare these two places. Say, oh, the Roseland is the worst place in town. The La Tosca, it's a very nice place. <laughs> And they say it's got a better class of nightlife. And what's funny about this is that they're saying this is a nicer place. But you know what they did there? What their specialty was? No. They ran drag shows. <laughs> really? In the 30s. They wow. Had, they had drag shows. I can't imagine that would have been that successful. It was a thing. Yeah? Yeah. Back They didn't call them drag shows then. They called them female impersonators. But yes, this is a thing going back a long time. I mean, I suppose. Why wouldn't it? I mean, I guess it would be just more hush-hush, right? Yeah. Than it is today. Well, you know, so rumors were going out about how things were had been going on in the jail. An investigation was opened up into the jail. I'm like, wait a second, what's going on? Because this is not okay. Even though it's one thing to look the other way because they don't care about people drinking or whatever. You can't have people coming and going from jail and throwing parties. <laughs> like, that's not really cool. So full investigation uh, goes in. And one of the guards actually had kept a diary going back years. So he had just tons of evidence of things that were going on. Um, he had one day in his calendar, in his, uh, in his diary, where uh, Krupe apparently threw a party. And a female inmate was allowed into the male part of the jail. And she did what they called a fan dance. 
And oh, and do you know what a fan dance is? I don't know what a fan dance is, but I think I'm going to find it to be probably pretty funny. Okay. So a fan dance is um, where somebody, typically a woman, gets completely naked. And then she's got two large fans, like, you know, leaves on a tree type fans. Not, yes. like, not like a box fan. And she'll dance in such a way where she moves these things. So you never actually see anything. <laughs> but you think you're going to because because if she just moves the fans wrong, you're going to see something. <laughs> Apparently, this happened in uh, in the jail. So that was, that was fun. Everybody's getting drunk watching this. Um, the next day, the cards had to clean. The guards had to clean up forty-two smashed windows, wow, and a dozen broken benches. So something crazy happened that night. I don't know. How did half these people not escape? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, so they're they're calling people in, questioning them, and yes, definitely some people were getting better treatment than others. Uh, some of them were bribing guards to get this better treatment. Um. Krupy apparently is definitely getting the better treatment. Uh, other guards were saying that he had an inexhaustible supply of liquor and tobacco while he was in there. Um, he had people who would bring in packages for him, including a freshly cooked chicken, <laughs> a ham, some candy, several pints of liquor. Apparently, the the warden was told about this, and the warden did not care. Um, one of the prisoners was worked in the, uh, in the laundry and he crossed out house of correction on the laundry baskets and wrote house of corruption <laughs> and nobody cared. This apparently stayed on there for quite some time. So the laundry baskets also had house of corruption on it. It's really strange because you would think this croupy would have been like a very high profile prisoner I, I would feel like yeah definitely and you would feel like the warden would be more worried about him doing anything that could raise you know awareness of like him getting special treatment or something mm-hmm but apparently he just didn't care huh he's just like yeah hey, whatever just let him do it apparently not now while all these guys are partying apparently there's other guys who are not having a good time in jail because <laughs> um, because one guard testifies that his entire job while he was making the rounds at night was to carry a knife on him in case he had to cut people down from trying to hang themselves. <laughs> wow. Um, he said that he it's he definitely had to do it from time to time, and twice he was not successful in actually getting to them in time. So two people on his watch did hang themselves. Wow. Um, so, yeah, so in one wing of the jail, people are getting drunk and having parties, and the other wing people are are ready to go. And man, I would have cut the guy down and been like, hey, man, go look what they're doing over there yeah. and just do that instead. <laughs> yeah, another high-profile prisoner in there at the same time was a man named uh, King George. His name was George Kolacheski, but everybody called him King George. Apparently, he had gotten famous as being a bootlegger in Green Bay. I have no idea why he was in Milwaukee. And, yet, and he always, always had booze on him. He had a guy who would sneak it in for him in a wooden leg. <laughs> he would, he, every day the guy would come to work and he would have wo- uh, booze in his wooden leg for him. So King George always had booze on him. So <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this, this goes on and on and on. People bribing to get better jobs in the, in the jail. And so on. And, and, pretty, and there were a couple guards who were like, yeah, I never saw anything. But most of them were like, yeah, this was 
This is crazy stuff. So the warden ends up getting in quite a bit of trouble, as you can imagine. I would imagine. So he does eventually get fired, I'm assuming. Yes. And yes. they kind of clean the prison up. Yeah. The district attorney doesn't think it's as funny as some of these other people think it is. Um, you know, the county and, and the taxpayers, they don't want to be paying for this. This is not what they they have a jail for. So uh, they're not they're not too thrilled about it. Now, Coopy uh, is in Sicily. He actually takes a work as a railroad worker. He writes uh, a deposition and he says, hey, you know, I can come back and I can testify against all these people who were <laughs> who were corrupt and breaking the rules. And they're like, yeah, I don't, we don't really want him to come back. Um, they agree to take his statement. And so Krupe writes, over 20 times I went out of the prison in order to go to a dentist and have my teeth taken care of. I asked permission of the deputy, Gillette Benson, who had a guard accompany me. It was during these visits that Krupe was given two hours at his home with his wife and his friends would pay the guard to look the other way. Take that for however you want. Krupe stressed that only the guards were paid and never anyone in authority at the prison. He said he never brought liquor into the jail, but others did, and the prison guards and superiors both bought and sold the alcohol. Drunken prisoners were put in solitary confinement to sober up. Regarding the other prisoners, he said, each one of us did whatever we pleased as long as one gave something to the personnel. He only recalled the name of one complicit guard, a Polish man named Anton Gouda. Uh, Krupe wrote a letter to the district attorney directly claiming that if he was allowed to return to Milwaukee, he could point out other people that who he didn't know names of, but he knew by sight, and he could explain who each of them were and what they had done. Uh, the district attorney did not take him up on this <laughs> offer. So, yeah, this is basically goes on and on, and there's things going on. They're smuggling marijuana in. One guy finds a way to smuggle marijuana in inside of fountain pens. Nice. So uh, probably not very large amounts <laughs> if he's putting it in pens, but they're getting it in there. And yeah, just on and on. Like, this place was – it was a madhouse, uh, to put it lightly. So now you said that Krupe, yeah, he started in what year, the 30s? Yeah, maybe late 20s, but really got big in 1930, yeah. And then what – when did he – when did he finally go to jail? Already by like 31. So oh, by, by, sorry, this wasn't very long. No, right? I mean, I'm sure he had been doing it for years, but by the time he was getting big press, like – like the papers were actually saying. By the time you can pick up a trace of it, yeah, he's, they're already hot on trying. To yeah, when he's when he's it. when he's front page news and he's known as the Vice Lord, he doesn't <laughs> last too much longer after that. <laughs> like that's you can only cut him so much slack at that point. So with this period where they're really going after like Krupe and these other brothels, is this kind of where you start seeing the brothel thing die off? Do you know? Um. You know, like, when do they yeah. hit that point of cleaning up brothels where they're just not something you can walk down the street and find? That's a really good question. You know, I've never thought about it, but but there probably is a connection because, um, again, this is about 1930. And we're, we're going to talk about the 40s, the 50s, all the way up through the 70s. I mean, there's this doesn't go away. Um, you might be on to something because... It's less and less a thing that you see in the city and more often something you see like outside of the, the city, city limits. Like you almost have to know a person who tells you where to go to find this type of stuff at that point. Yeah, like it, you'll increasingly see it in the in the newspapers that these places are referred to as roadhouses. 
Um, so it's like places that the enforcement is very lax because there's not a city police department. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I never really thought about it, but it, I guess it's at this point you probably see it less and less. I mean, you're always going to have people walking the street and that sort of thing. I mean, that doesn't go away. But it's this concentrated area yeah, with house. actual houses and stuff. Yeah, I think this is pretty much the end of that. And much, much more out in the open where, I mean, literally, I would envision in Milwaukee, anybody could just walk in off the street and find a prostitute pretty easily. Which, yeah. Which, that goes away very quickly where it's now you need to know a person that can tell you where to go to find that prostitute. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, at this time, I don't know if they called it a red light district, but, you know, it's essentially yeah, what it was. Exactly. And, and yeah, and later on, it gets moved out to roadhouses, and later still what happens is it becomes more, like, more scattered. You would go to a bar and the bar owner would refer you to somebody, and then that somebody would put you in a taxi, and you'd and go to a hotel, hotel room or, or whatever. Seven. Yeah, so there's like these multiple steps where there's not like an actual place that anybody is running. Um, these these women might have pimps or something, but they might not. This is just it gets looser and looser. All right, so I think we have concluded the prostitution part two. Part two, yeah, I think that about covers it. I would say, yeah, the. The first big name that really pops up is Vincent Krupe. There's going to be some others along the way, but he's he's the first real uh, Sicilian mob connected guy who's who's mixed up in this. And technically speaking, the mob uh, doesn't like this sort of thing. They'll claim again and again and again, we don't do that because it's disrespectful to women. Um, but they're more than happy to pocket the money. <laughs> so they're probably. But if somebody else does it, we want a cut of the money. <laughs> right. Right. So that's the thing. Like, I don't think you're, you're going to be like, they're going to be like, oh, yeah, Krupe, uh, we don't like what he does. But as long as he keeps paying us, I mean, we're, we're, gonna we're just going to kind of ignore it. Cool. All right. Well, you want to hit everybody up with some contact information? Sure. Uh, you can find me at milwaukeemafia.com or you can email me at milwaukeemafia at gmail.com. Nice and simple. And we do apologize. This is our record for a longest episode here. Is it? Yes, it is. Cool. So I knew it would be long. I don't care. Yeah. (laughs) So we apologize if we offended you. We promise the future ones will be shorter, but not always, but it's a good story. Not always. So, All right. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We'll catch you next week on another episode of the Milwaukee Mafia. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Milwaukee Mafia podcast. Join us next week for another look back at Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history.